I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I started writing this book, as many of the things I write, when Mary Kay Wilmers, who is here, of the London Review of Books, said, would I like to write about first Elizabeth Badinter? And then she got the bright idea, which she often has, I hope she won't mind, of sending me loads of other books on mothers, just to sort of flesh it out and give me more options. And then slowly this sort of mushroomed into a meditation on mothers, um, and then I was encouraged to turn it into a book, and I wasn't sure I could do it, and I wasn't sure it was going to work. And the thing that really sparked it off and made it feel definitively possible was me coming across things that made me think that the other side of the idealization of mothers, of course, feminism has been saying this for centuries, the other side of idealization is always hatred. And what started to strike me was the level of hostility and cruelty towards mothers that just passes through the culture disregarded. And the book starts with a moment for me that was really shocking, which was the headline of the Sun newspaper, From Here to Maternity. And the picture was of a Nigerian mother with five babies. Read black women produce, reproduce irresponsibly into excess. And the implication, the story was that England was, Great Britain was being invaded by refugee mothers who were health tourists who were coming to give birth free on the NHS. And it was the headline with a big article inside the newspaper. It wasn't the only newspaper to do it, not then, not for the few weeks that followed. And what really gave the game away for me was at a cost to the taxpayer of £350,000 a year. This was around the time of the Brexit campaign. We all know what 350000 means. It means the 350 million that's it's deliberately designed to echo the 350 million that's meant to come straight into the cost of the NHS if we leave the European Union, which we know now to have been, we knew then, was a total lie. So I just thought, what are mothers being blamed for? What is this level of hostility and hatred? It's as if they are responsible for the refugee crisis, the migrant crisis, they're responsible for the collapse of the NHS, the drain on the welfare state, and for their own sexuality, which is seen as somehow irresponsible. 
And the article was terrifying because it got pretty close to saying, hunt this woman down. Said she's no doubt now, she's been abandoned by her Nigerian husband. She's no doubt now living somewhere off illegitimately claimed benefits. Well, you know, once you start scraping the surface of this narrative, it's amazing what you, I found. So I didn't know until my friend Sally told me. She said, by the way, did you know 50,000 women on an average year are sacked from jobs because they're pregnant? I then found out that 77% of women in the workplace undergo forms of intimidation, harassment, bullying, and unfair treatment when they're pregnant or young mothers. That firms will have policies in place for disabled workers, but not for pregnant women. So I slowly but surely came around to, there was a headline in the New York Times recently, which said, um, if Americans love their mothers, why do they let them die? The infant mortality rate in the US is the highest in the industrialized world. So Grace, basically what I'm saying is that I, felt I was uncovering this sort of underworld of cruelty, of licensed cruelty towards mothers for being mothers. So that's how it began. And then the book really became a scavenging act of finding this evidence and hauling it in, and then looking out for the counter voices, the, the women, mainly women, who were telling a different story, either telling that one and exposing it, or just telling a different story about what it meant to be a mother. So it's a bit of a medley, the book. Absolutely, this idea of, of the idealization and the glorification of the mother being a mask for tremendous cruelty uh, comes through uh, again and again and again in the book and explains also why there's very little language really for mothers to speak about their condition or even to speak to each other in honest terms because they're always failing to meet this ideal that is internalized in, in lots of ways. And your readings of so many different figures in the book, so many different writers, to create and locate that other language and that other history is, is com completely extraordinary. And it builds and it builds and it builds. But you begin, I mean, having narrated the, the sh this shocking erection of borders against children, against mothers, against immigrants, against the vulnerable, and the cruelty that's visited on mothers and others today. And then you move and you ask the question, was it always thus? Was it always thus? And I, I feel it's important that you should share something of what Greek thought and Greek representations of motherhood, classical Greek thought, add to your uh, sense oh, of Oh gosh, well, this was a very tricky place to go because I'm not a classicist. So I have my classic scholars, Edith Hall and Esther, I don't know, on call, on daily call, <laughs> um, to make sure I wasn't putting my foot right in the middle of it, which of course I was by definition. But it's a very mixed story. And one of the, and there's very little evidence, as Mary Beard, Edith Hall, Esther, all the classic scholars will say, you have very little concrete evidence of the lives of Greek women. It's really difficult to dig it out of the, the dust, as it were. But one of the places where there is at least, even though these plays were written by men, which of course is important, a systematic, repeated, profound, and difficult exploration of motherhood is on the stage. So one of my favorite plays is The Suppliant Women by Euripides, where the mother of the king, Theseus, pleads with him on behalf of the mothers of the enemy soldiers who've been slain 
to bury their sons. So it's like a mother, listen with mother version of Antigone, right? Uh, because it's being done not on behalf of the sister pleading for her brother to be buried, but these mothers pleading for their sons to be buried. And Theseus says to her, why should I be interested in, in these women? And she said, because it will be for the good of the city-state. And I thought, this is astounding. She has authority as the mother of the king, but she's speaking for a cross-national community of mothers in grief, right? So it breaks about every sort of stereotype of mothers. It's the public civic place. It's, I am not just a citizen of my country. I'm a citizen of the world. And she pleads in the name of democracy. And Theseus not only accepts, he gets down in the dirt and shares in the bathing of the bodies of these dead enemy soldiers. So it seems to me that player is saying the litmus test for true democracy is how you treat mothers, which I think would be a very good place to start. On the other hand, you've got, of course, Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra, who, as you all know, murders Agamemnon because he murdered their daughter. I'm on her side. Let me just make this absolutely clear before we go any further. She's then murdered by Orestes, who gets let off. This is a very, very simple story you can write on the back of the book. So he gets let off. Well, there is a question. Why is the murder of the mother acceptable um, and the murder of the husband who has killed the child not acceptable? And in Robert Icke's wonderful modern interpretation of the Aristia, which, by the way, was packed to the rafters, which shows we're still linked to all of this. Leah Williams, who plays Clytemnestra brilliantly, just says very quietly, because the woman is less important. And she says it through gritted teeth. So he made a feminist point out of it. So Athena decides in Orestes' favor, but not before the Furies have said, how dare you? How dare you think that matricide is less of a crime? Um, but on the course of that, you have Apollo stand up in the court and say, and this was a quite prevalent belief in Greek times, stand up in the court and say, the seed is a stranger to a stranger. The mother who hosts the child is simply guarding the presence of the, of the seed, i.e. she plays no role in gestation whatsoever. So it seemed to me, to cut a long story short, that you got completely contradictory visions of what a motherhood was. But one thing you've got which is really important is just this sense that a woman's civic destiny does not end when she becomes a mother. And Rachel Cusk in her extraordinary book, uh, uh, Life's Work, which caused such a scandal when it came out about 10 years ago, she says she felt disenfranchised. She felt when she became a mother that the whole world contracted and reduced into the walls of the room in which she was with her baby. Even if a woman goes out to work, something about her civic potential is curtailed just by being a mother. And I think the Greeks were better on that. And they were also much better on the erotics of motherhood than we are. Oh, well. I think. Civics, erotics, which one shall I go for? I don't know. I, I, I would actually. I, I, I mean, I want to, I, I think I'll return to the civics aspect of, of the relationship to the maternity and the polis, I think is a thread throughout the book that's crucial and very eye-opening. But you come again and again back to the erotic and the way in which motherhood and sexuality have been brutally separated in, in various cultural forms. But the little signs and, and hints you get here and there that, that 
maternity is profoundly immersed in an erotic relation between the mother and the child in many, many cases. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, how, how to talk about this? Okay, well, Elena Ferrante has this wonderful line where she says, uh, a mother, not least to her dressmaker, must never have the body of a woman because she must not give off the erotic vapor of the mother's body, right? Quite strong, heady stuff. So she's really saying, I think, that the mother mustn't have any sensuality because she is so sensual. And that the two go hand in hand. And it seemed, and, you know, and one of my friends who's actually sitting here today, and she's, she's mentioned in the book, said to me that no woman of a young child must be an erotic object, that infidelity in a young mother is a, she will bring down the wrath of the gods on her head because what you're not meant to be as a mother is sexual. That's meant to be the end of it once you become a mother. And I think that's a very, Rachel Bowlby has written brilliantly about how the fact that these days we can no longer be sure that all births come from two parents of different sexes who once had sex. We can't assume that anymore because of surrogacy and IVF and gay and trans and everything. We can't, just can't assume it. So sex, the idea of an originary sexual act is being, or the primal scene, is being more and more complicated in actually, I think, rather creative and interesting ways. But it's also as if sexuality and motherhood are just on a different planet. It's as if a woman's erotic life ends when she becomes a mother, which is not a way of just suppressing her. It's also a way of wiping out the erotics of the mother-infant relationship, which is so much about breaking of borders and boundaries and smell and touch and food and the insides of the body. So when I'm trying to explain Melanie Klein to students and the fact she's really interested in the inside she thinks the baby's really curious about the inside of the mother's body and the students always go, oh, that's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> I always say, yeah, but isn't it interesting that we really relate to each other through the surface, so much through the surface of our bodies. So when we fall in love with someone, we don't say, I just love your intestines, right? <laughs> you know, or your liver has really kept me away from that. No, no, it's very, very circumspect. The body has to be boarded, even if it's penetrated or broken into or however you want to describe it. So it seems to me there's a kind of conspiracy to purify and sanitize the body of both the mother and the baby, but that being a mother is about the breaking of every single one of those borders in a rather pleasurable but very messy way and people don't want to know about it. They don't want to know about it and I, I really want them to know about it. <laughs> I, I think it explains so much the erotics of motherhood. I'll just say a, a little p personal thing because what, it seems to me that it isn't only because of the idealization of the mother that, and the hatred that that occludes that mothers can wind up being the worst version of themselves when they're interacting with their children. I, what I, one of the things I've noticed in my, in my own case is that I, my romantic fantasies about my children when I'm not with them <laughs> uh, are, are extraordinary. I long to be with them. I'm overwhelmed by a desire to be with them, and that desire is bodily. What I really want is for them to say nothing at all, just, <laughs> just 
just embrace, just to embrace, uh, just to be uh, physically together, physically close. And, and, and that desire, that desire for physical contact is, is so visceral, it's so overwhelming. It's, it's my romance. I, you know, and, and then when I see them, almost the moment I see them, I'm this weird, shrill, short-tempered, <laughs> awful person. I, I'm really horrible and I'm very disappointing to them and to myself. I'm nothing like I thought I'd be. And I think part of that is because why are we still separate? <laughs> Somehow the inside thing makes, makes sense to me. And I, I, you know, breastfeeding is something I find very hard to give up. <laughs> because of the that the intimacy that, and the yeah. closeness. So somehow that you could you talk a little bit more about the the places where you found allusions uh, to that kind of intimacy? Yeah, because that I feel isn't really there, but you find it in, in the history of art a little bit, a little bit in psychoanalysis. Uh. Well, you do. Jean Laplanche came and spoke in, uh, years and years and years ago when John Forrester, the wonderful psychoanalytic critic. John Forrester, who died, I think it was two, two years ago, because she was very like Christian. Um, and he set up this amazing set of dialogues between British and French psychoanalysts. And Jean Laplanche came along and he just talked about the fact that nobody discusses a mother's erotic pleasure when she's breastfeeding. And this is one of the great taboos. And he talked about the mother's arousal by her baby's body. And I remember, I mean, it was such a remarkable gathering that he pulled off because there was sort of everything from sort of Althusserian PhD students to 83-year-old psychoanalysts sitting on a Friday night in this arena. And one of the oldest analysts in the room, I remember she put her hand up and said, are you suggesting for a moment, yes, she had a strong old <laughs> are you suggesting for a moment that the mother is aroused by her baby? Mm. We see, and she said, we see erections in little boys at six weeks old. And it was as if, he had said something so shocking, which is that the mother's sexuality is at play as well. So I was very struck by that. And I said, apart from psychoanalysis, this is hardly talked about. And then, of course, I got people writing to me saying, what about this wonderful Naomi Mitchison description of the erotics of breastfeeding? And I can't remember the name of the novel now. So people then started sending me in examples. But they were few and far between. It's not, it's not easily accessible or easy to talk about because, of course, it's now been affected by child abuse scandals. So when Victoria Beckham was caught kissing her five-year-old daughter Harper on the mouth, she was trolled. You know, pervy, lesbian, you know. And it was as if what it's as if we've had to even more desexualize that relationship because of the danger of a false eroticizing of the, the father-daughter relationship in particular. I feel that that's a very strong aspect of the book that you bring that you bring out, and that's somehow that if it's denied, it becomes it looks more and more like an abuse situation. I mean, it looks more and more problematic uh, if it isn't normalised in 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 uh, any way, shape, or form at all. I I I want to leave that because it's clearly very personal. <laughs> it's very personal. One of the refrains in the book, and it seems to me that this book is finding a language, inventing a language, uh, finding a history, inventing a history, and so on, for mothers and for, and for maternity. Uh, one of the, using other players who, who, who've been attempting the same thing, but uh, one of the refrains in the book, you return quite often to Adrian Rich's book, 
of women born. And one of the refrains in the book is this idea that the reason that mothers aren't allowed to appear or speak and must be kept behind various fences is that we know too much. We know too much. So I'm interested if you could speak a little bit to this idea of what is it that mothers know and what form of knowledge is okay. a maternal one. Okay, there's a wonderful... It's Adrian Richards of Woman Born, which I think is unsurpassed to this day. I think it's an absolutely brilliant book. And I read it and reread it. And I, I and you, you cite her in your uh, On Being Yeah, Church I love book. it too, yeah. Yes. Okay, and... She talks at one point about the violence of the world which mothers are expected to mitigate and assuage. And Rachel Cusk talks about how when she became a mother, she felt at once cut off from the world's political life, the polis as it were. But she felt more in touch with her own virtuousness and terror and more in touch with the virtue and terror of the world than she ever had before. And I think what they're both saying is that actually, well, for exactly the anecdote you just gave, with five minutes with your kids and you turn into a monster. I'm sure it's not always true. Two minutes. minutes. Two, Two minutes. minutes, okay. <laughs> 20 seconds, whatever you want to say. Right, which is that if you're a mother, you are constantly up against your own imperfection. You're constantly failing. You're constantly losing control of the things that you're meant to be controlling and sanitizing and tidying up and cleaning up for the world and so on and so forth. And it therefore becomes all the more paradoxical that the mother is meant to be the emblem of virtue and sanity and perfection and cleanliness and purity and all, all of that. I think to be a mother for five minutes is to know that the world is unjust and that our hearts are impure. I think we know that. I think that's the knowledge mother ha mothers have. I think it's a secret knowledge they share. But, and for that very reason, they are asked to redeem the world's failings and the failings of the human heart. They're meant to make it all come out right in the wash. But because mothers know that's rubbish, the demand becomes more intense and the hatred intensifies, right? Because the book really has a very simple argument, which is that something is being asked of mothers, which nobody is equal to, which is to make the world possible. Right? So there's a wonderful epigraph from Hisham Matar's extraordinary book, um, the, Return. the Return, where he says, I suppose that is what we want from our mothers, to maintain the world. And even if it is a lie, to proceed as though the world could be maintained. Um, and this is where Elena Ferranti comes in, which I'm sure you're going to get yeah. to, which is the one thing she makes clear is that nobody is accountable individually for the failings of the world, for the resurgence of fascism in the body politic of Italy, for the, dis the disintegration of the world in the mind of Lila. Nobody is accountable for that. There is a failure of borders, there is a failure of individual integrity, there's a political failure. Why do you expect mothers to sort it? So I think mothers have the knowledge that that's rubbish, and I think that's one of the reasons why they're hated, because they know it's a complete travesty.
We are coming back now to the relationship between the mo mothers and the city-state and the mothers and, uh, and the political world that Rachel Cusk feels contemporary motherhood is sort of forcibly removing mothers from. But one of the really extraordinary ideas I find in the book is one of the theories why mothers are meant to be as innocent as their children is because they represent the new life, bringing the new into the world. And so there's a theory that therefore they must represent that innocent new beginning. And the moment they deviate from it, they've sort of spoilt the child. They've, they, they've wrecked the contract uh, from the world. I'm, I'm going to read out. Yes, it's, you, you say that the harshest thing you found to be the case, because you do say that you're sort of expecting to be, to be worrying about the effect of idealization on mothers. But the thing that surprised you in the course of writing this book is that you think the most, the deepest cruelty, even more cruel perhaps than the idealization of the mother, is this idea that it's the task of mothers to trample over the past and lift us out of historical time to secure a new dawn. So this idea that mothers must be innocent of history. They must know nothing of history. And therefore, sort of be innocent of the, the thing that presumably most mothers do feel and think. Should I bring a child into this world? I mean, is that obvious that I should do that? Is this world good enough to bring someone into that? That's a real question the moment you bring mothers into history and give them a historical consciousness. And I think that's one of the things the book does. But I wondered if, and maybe, maybe this is asking too much here, but I wondered if you could try and address the notion of if there is a specifically maternal temporality or a maternal relationship to history that you think the book, may, maybe it's going too far. No, to it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. It's just so difficult because one of, the, one of the essays, articles in the book that really resonates for me, which I think is as revolutionary now as when it was published in 1949, is Winnicott's Hate and the Counter-Transference which lists the 18 reasons a mother has to hate her baby, of which the most evocative is she can neither eat him nor have sex with him. Um, and them. it was an utterly, utterly scandalous article when it was published, although you can get away with things in psychoanalysis that you can't get away with in you know, the Sun newspaper, obviously. Um, and for me, it's terribly important that he wrote it in 1949, because that was the time when my mother was struggling to be a mother and in fact had two children already although she was barely into her 20s and she was required to clean the house from top to toe on a daily basis and this was the post-war generation who'd seen horrors I mean, at least of all all her grandparents all her parents family had gone to the camps and it just struck me there's a relationship between this perfectibility of the bourgeois household, which has to be absolutely right. And Winnicott writing this essay in 1949 as if he was saying, mothers are being suffocated by this psychic legacy, and I want to free them up a bit so that they don't feel it is their task to make the world clean when it clearly isn't. So I think that's a very good, a very good moment of when, you know, somebody like my mother had a knowledge which she wasn't allowed to have which was of the pain of the history that her family had just that minute lived through. 
Another example is when I was in South Africa last year and I talked to women who were working with depressed mothers. And there was this incredible case study. I mean, the, the level of postnatal depression in South Africa is epidemic at the moment. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary, especially, guess what, amongst poor black mothers. And one of the case studies was actually about depression in the mothers of slightly older children who found themselves hitting their child. And it was very, very clear that these mothers were suffering the most terrible disappointment because apartheid has not improved the situation of the great majority of the black population of South Africa. And so there they were with their new baby that was meant to represent, like post-apartheid South Africa, this new dawn. And it wasn't happening. They barely had enough food, let alone heating, education, or whatever. Their prospects were utterly stultified. And it was as if they, they felt they failed because they lashed out at their children, but they lashed out at their children because they knew that they'd failed. And therefore, there was this complex, it was as if they were carrying the knowledge of the lie that post-apartheid South Africa has repaired the social fabric of the nation. And then it got played out in their relationship with their babies, and it came out as depression. It didn't come out as, this is what's wrong, and I'm going to become a political activist. Mm. Well, guess what? They didn't have time for that with their mm. kids. It came out as despair, mm. because there's a certain kind of political knowledge and political freedom and change which just wasn't being allowed to them. So I think it's really made me just really curious, and there's loads more to think about about this, of how women are expected to relate to a history which is absolutely part of what they're living, but they're not really meant to think about it, because this is meant to be the new, the new moment. Also in the good sense that Hannah Arendt says, every new birth is a new beginning, which raises itself up again, a potential new voice, and therefore it's the anti-totalitarian moment. And I love that passage in Arendt. I think it's beautiful. And, well, I'm going to come back to Aaron uh, in a moment, but I wanted to stick with the Winnicott and that passage about the, those mothers from the Cape and their voices and, and their self-lacerations is right at the end of the book because you feel that those are the voices that need to be entering the mainstream and aren't there at all. And I think that's such an important part of the book. Uh, and there's similar voices throughout the book, but I, I, I can see why they're there right at the end. But I wanted to go back to Winnicott because I, I feel what you, one of the things you take from Winnicott and that I take from the book is that for Winnicott, allowing hate into the picture is, isn't... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Enabling cruelty, it's preventing cruelty. So, so, so that cruelty happens when you won't admit the, the hate. And you take it to you say it's not ambivalence. It's, <laughs> it, it's not ambivalence. It, it's hate. There are moments of, of hate. And there's this extraordinary claim where you say that... Um, the, for Winnicott, non-sentimentality in a parent and non-idealization of, of the mother is hugely important if you're not going to create this compliant, pleasing child, and you're going to create a child who can use their mothers properly, is one of the ways in which you put it. And I'm so fascinated by that idea, a child who can use their mothers properly. Could you well, talk about Well, for Winnicott, that? it's even more than that. It's a, like a child who has the capacity to be ruthless with the mother and can make use ruthlessly of the mother and the, the idea is that the mother's, well for Winnicott it's absolutely, some of you will know this so forgive me, but for Winnicott it's absolutely crucial that the mother's task is to disillusion the baby because to begin with, you know, for the first, that's why it's so idyllic at the beginning, your first task is just to feed, to hold, to help sleep, to so clear, it's a moment in your life where you're so clear what you're meant to be doing. You don't have to ask yourself any questions about what am I supposed to be doing today or what's the best thing I could do? It's so obvious and it's also very sensuous. And it's, it's, it's extraordinary. But his ta- he, he says it's absolutely crucial for the mother to initiate the child into the fact that she is not there completely forever for the baby and there has to be a kind of separation which is going to contain an element of rage and disappointment and frustration and violence which is why he talks about the good enough mother which means for goodness sake don't try and be perfect because if you're trying to be perfect you will be silencing the range of voices of your child you won't be giving them the right to have good and bad feelings so the classic example for me is Aurelia Plath who lifts out of Plath's incredible verse drama three women the lines from voice one, who is the mother who keeps her baby. What did I do before I touched you? You know, what did my hands do before I could? And drops, she goes and gives a lecture about her daughter. So it's really ironic because her daughter has died. She's giving a lecture about her daughter. And she reads from her daughter's poem about mothers. How complex can you get? And she picks out all the lyrical lines, but she cuts out, I am the center of an atrocity. I am breaking apart like the world. I mean, none of that gets in. And the genius of Plath is to have all that on the same page at the same time. So likewise with Ariel, which she wanted to start with Morning Song, the first word of which is love, and then with the B sequence, which is the last word of which is spring. And in the middle, she talks about your nakedness. In fact, in Morning Song has this amazing line, your nakedness shadows our safety as if to say your vulnerability shows us that our safety is a complete illusion. So as if Plath knows that love and spring are very precariously trying to contain the darkness of shadows. And what does Hughes do? 
He ends with the poems Edge and Cut, which are about a woman about to kill herself. Plath knew exactly what she wanted. It was a book about mothering, and now see that as his greatest scandal to have sort of robbed her of that fierce complexity that she was describing and to make it look as if, well, it's all, they're all leading to her death, which is to silence her effectively. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think, you know, this, this is a rich theme that can be mine, but you're absolutely right. Winnicott says that to try and be perfect as a mother is, above all, to suppress the psychic life of your child, to stop them from being able to breathe. And you, you ask this question uh, in relationship to that Winnicott section. It's a critical question, I think. What version of motherhood might make it possible for a mother to listen to her child? And you clarify that, actually, that, that when a child is crying, is a mother able to listen to that cry and not take it personally <laughs> in, some, in some way. To hear that cry as a genuine plaint, that an expression, a, a critical expression coming from the child, it's rather than, hard. I mean, is there a version? Are you saying Plath maybe gives us a... Well, Plath wrote to her mother when her mother said, you're writing such depressing poetry. <laughs> and she wrote back and she said, well, you know, you, you want all your saccharine stuff, the ladies home journalist for that, which interestingly, she also loved writing for, so it's a bit complex, a bit more complex. Um, I think that's the question. I don't have an answer to that. I mean, there is no answer to that, which is how, how what does it mean to listen to the unhappiness of a child? It's, it's unbearable. Um, and the reproach of a child, and just listen to it, um, because some others really can't bear to hear it. But I think that does, I think this is again a historic point. I do think my mother's generation really were blighted by the expectation to make everything good and whole and, and the world safe. And I therefore think I always say they didn't have feminism that generation. They didn't have psychoanalysis, right? So they had neither the critique of the patriarchal oppression nor the possibility of looking inside their own hearts. And therefore, I think it really became a kind of straitjacket where you couldn't listen. You couldn't listen to anything difficult. Mate, I'm familiar with this. We should open oh. up to questions. Oh, we should? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, sorry. we should. I'm quite interested in um, what you think about monstrosity. Um, so mothers becoming monstrous. So like when we think about Medea, um, sort of, and how she kind of becomes like the language is quite possessive about the children. Possessive, I would say. So it's like they're not really separated from her and there's like this infanticide. And then I guess something like Toni Morrison's Beloved um, kind of linking in with that. And also I think it's, there's like a poetic element within Sylvia Plath's Three Women that I would argue this sort of moment of- In Sylvia Plath's? Um, three Women, which- Three would, Women. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that or if you could expand on that. There's a poetic element, did you well, say? Well, no, there's uh, sort of, the, within the three women, there's sort of perhaps like an element of infanticide in the poetry. I don't know if you think so. Oh, okay. Or, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sort of interested in the kind of, the, the monstrous, the mother is monstrous and, and how you think that kind of feeds into what you've been talking about. Well, Medea is very tricky. Because, in fact, she is concerned, above all, about becoming an exile and her children being subjected to atrocity. So it could be read 
in a very different way from the... I think the question we need to ask about Medea is why the infanticide is always sexualized. So she becomes a raving, crazy woman, rather than a woman like uh, Sefer in Beloved, who murders her child heartbreakingly but rationally to stop her from being sold back into slavery. So I think it really depends on how you read Medea, and that's why the book has a whole section on Krista Wolf's Medea, where she is not a murderer at all. She knows the city has been built on the foundations of a child murder, and it's because she is exposing that truth that she is then expelled from the city. So I think it's a little bit complex. Um, whenever I see <coughs> Monster Mother, I want to know whose fantasy is it? Right, who is creating the monster? I sort of think it's rarely the mother herself. That's what I would think. Thank you for a absolutely fascinating talk. Um, there's one thing I, I was hoping you were going to get to, so I'm going to get to it now. <laughs> and that is to do with the whole question of motherhood and misogyny, and whether you think that motherhood, the fact that women are mothers, actually plays in in some way into the fact of a, a very generalized misogyny. And I wonder, I mean, I, completely randomly, it comes into my mind, you've been focusing on mothers and babies. And in fact, mothering goes on for a very, very, very long time. And uh, those babies turn into adults. And uh, quite often in history, they've turned into adult males. <laughs> And their, views, and their views of, of motherhood do tend to move towards the misogynistic. So, so I just wanted to do oh, gosh, yeah. How rant about that. <laughs> okay, well, Adrian Rich is the best on this because she says what, what men cannot cope with is the fact that they were originally of woman born, which is to say they were nurslingly dependents who were fragile and weak and needy and attached to the body of the mother, and they can't get over it. Um, not all men, of course. It's OK, just know that um, And there's this wonderful line in Klein, who's not known as a social thinker, because she argues that all boys go through a femininity phase because they're wrapped up in the body of the mother to begin with. And to become a man, you have to get rid of that completely and she says for that reason that is why male violence against women is so much more asocial than male violence against men because male violence against men is what boys are meant to do they're meant to measure up in the changing room and go to war male violence against women is domestic and intimate and echoes back into the chamber of what boys originally were in relationship to their mother's bodies so I think you're really spot on there, Lisa. I think there is something to do with the way the culture encourages men to detach from dependency and detach from the body of the mother, which then license the hatred towards mothers. And I even think, if you look at the attacks on single mothers through the centuries, and I discuss it in the book, it's absolutely incredible. And I think it's because she is like a mother who is on her own, who is managing in some way, but she's a dependent. She's the original scrounger. She's, and, and I think the whole critique of the dependency culture and the attack on welfare 
in a certain male conservative rhetoric is about hating the fact that these Eton boys were once precisely little boys. Never mind Eton, they were in the nursery. So I think you're, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, basically. So you've been writing recently about sexual harassment as well, Weinstein, the Me Too movement, and I'm curious to hear about how your thinking puts together motherhood and those phenomena. And I'm perhaps thinking of two things in particular, one of which Lisa's question touched on. One of which is daughters and sons' anger and ambivalence, perhaps, also within feminist texts, towards the mothers who failed to protect them from abusive fathers. And the other is the question of the kind of urge to find the mother who failed to prevent the son going on the rampage with guns in high school to kill the women who refused to sleep with him. So I'm just curious about the link between, in your thinking, between mothers and I guess masculinity and harassment. Well, the link term to undo decades of feminist critique of this term in one fell swoop would be patriarchy, right? I mean, that that's the link term. And one of the weirdest phenomena I found in researching this book was this thing called La Leche League, which is a Spanish pro-breastfeeding society which has millions and millions of followers. Because it went to America. Because, yeah, they went to America, and it's become this huge industry on breastfeeding. And in one of the one of their uh, pieces of literature, they more or less suggest that the Ila Vista murders, which you're referring to in California, were the result of that man not having been breastfed. So I think what you're describing is the way in which when anything, this is so simple, when anything goes wrong, it's the mother's fault. And what we have to do is unpack underneath that the hatred of femininity and the hatred of the body of the, of the mother and of the woman, which is, which is kind of keeping all that up. So in relationship to sexual harassment, I was very concerned that we don't see sexual harassment as the embodiment of all forms of masculinity, but precisely as a masculinity which is over-asserting itself as it knows it's on the brink of failure. To be really crude, look at Harvey Weinstein. Which of us would like to get into bed with him? Sorry, I don't want to be lookist, but he obviously is a slob. Um, <laughs> and this was the only way he could proceed through a mixture of power and physical and mental coercion. And he was excited, one of his, his subject objects said, by her fear. He was excited by her fear. So it's very important to me that this, that this particular, this is, there's also hope in this. Well, this form of, form of masculinity knows it's on a hiding to nothing, knows it's on a losing wicket, and that's why it asserts itself in that way. So, what we have to do is soften up all these boundaries. We have to soften them up, which in the book ends with Susan Stryker, the trans activist, with her arms and legs around the back of her lover, female, giving birth. And the incredible set of mutations and blurred lines and love that move down the line between all those bodies because there's also there's the mother there's the the baby from the previous relationship and the hospital don't know what to make of this tribe they're in complete confusion 
But every bodily law that's meant to be taking place in the act of gestation is flouted in this moment, which is of a sensuality which knows no limits. So I think what we have to do is look for the places where those forms of failing, failing rigidity of masculine identity are breaking and celebrate them. Uh, so we've heard about um, monstrous mothers and uh, derelict mothers. And uh, I was wondering if, um, I haven't read your book, Jacqueline, but in Devorah, in your book, um, you talk write very vividly about um, the, uh, character, the uh, caricature of the Jewish mother, particularly in Portnoy's complaint. Um, I was wondering if um, either of you could, had any examples of um, positive uh, depictions of uh, motherhood and maternity in uh, art or fiction, and, um, and uh, how these managed to be uh, convincing against all the uh, cultural forces we've heard described positive, tonight. Positive images of mothers and maternity. You answer this now. Positive images of Grace Paley. I'm actually writing about um, Once by Grace Paley at the moment, actually. Uh, a short story by Grace Paley. Grace Paley, Tilly Olson. Uh, uh, um, Grace Paley in particular is an very often her mother's. Her fiction's very short, always very short. And the reason her fiction's short she says it's because she was a mother <laughs> and an activist and a friend and a daughter and a wife and a citizen. She didn't have much time to write in long form. So even, even <laughs> formally, uh, even formally, we're getting a message about maternity in, in, in her work. But her fictions tend to be populated by very often single mothers, very often immigrant mothers or mothers who are from some kind of minority position, but mothers who are very good at crossing boundaries. And they're quite good at experimenting. So they take maternity as, as, as a place where you can do some sort of experiments. Uh, you can meet new people, you can form bonds, uh, and you can try new things out because nothing is ever over, nothing is ever decided. If that didn't work, you try, you, you try another way. And she's also, in, in the terms I think Jackman lays out in this book, in, in Once, this short story that, that, that I love, which is really to do with the question, what does woman want? Uh, and, and she's talking to her ex-husband who's saying, I wanted a sailboat, you never wanted anything. You'll always want nothing. Uh, she's saying, no, I, I think I do want some things. I want, I want to be a different person. And, and that, one of the things she realized she wants, she said, I had promised my children to end the war before they grew up. So she links, um, uh, so this is the kind of thing a mother wants. So she links, so this is the kind of thing a mother wants and thinks she ought to do as well. That I've had a child, so I need to end the war. So it's, those things are completely connected. And Grace Paley, as a writer, but also within her writing, portrays mothers who, who are trying to do both, end wars and raise children. Yeah. And my two, two favorite examples in the book, I have a whole chapter on Elena Ferrante, mm. because I think her depiction of motherhood is like astounding disturbing and creative and energized and freaky all in one go. I think it's, I think she, you know, I really feel she takes the lid off it all and I'm hugely grateful to her. <clears throat> and the book ends with Sindhibi Magana, who is a South African writer who wrote an incredible book called From Mother to Mother, where she imagines herself as the mother of the black township boy who murdered Amy Beale. Uh, just as apartheid was coming to an end under the slogan, one settler, one bullet. This was a white activist, uh, anti-apartheid activist, NGO, American woman who wandered into Gugulutu 
township and got murdered. And she, Mother to Mother is Louis Magana's book in which she imagines herself writing to the mother, imagines herself as the mother of the child who killed Amy Beale, writing to Amy Beale's mother. And I think it's one of the most extraordinary attempts to tell the worst story, but through an act of potential communication. It's not soppy, it's not sentimental, it's not even necessarily successful, the communication, but it's an attempt. And I think it's quite, quite magic. So I'm very intrigued as someone who's always been interested in boundaries and fluid bodies, uh, but someone who has a mother and is not one. Um, how, so, the body as fluid and in those in the many ways in which your body is politicized and can't be self-contained in the which in the way that's demanded of you um, however that may manifest happens in earlier life and where that splits off um, in motherhood because I I think that does happen in some ways the body leaking and being fluid and crossing those boundaries in early life but how how and where and if it feels like a split or if it feels like something indeed more fluid, how that happens. Well, I had a colleague at Queen Mary who had um, a young baby and was having huge problems with childcare arrangements. And I said, bring the, just bring, I was a, an older woman in the department. I therefore felt a huge responsibility towards younger women who were coming up against the pressure of maternity in their profession. I said, bring the baby to work. Just bring the baby to work. And if you have to sit in a meeting with the baby, it's fine. And, I, and I, it wasn't just that I wanted her life to be livable, because she literally couldn't have gone on working if, that, if she hadn't been able to do that. But I also think people should just see what a baby is. You know, so <laughs> there's sort of a thing, you know, men don't change nappies, but actually now today they do change nappies, right? Um, or more men are changing nappies. But nonetheless, you know, the term a working mother is a contradiction in terms because the one thing a working mother is not meant to do is ever bring her baby to work, right? So working mother means work and mother. <laughs> and these spaces must be kept completely purified and sanitized against each other. It's rubbish. But what the world would look like if we broke that boundary, I have no idea. <laughs> so, it's a really good question. I wondered if you could say maybe a tiny bit more about the rage of the mother and the hatred that the mother has, either for the child or for the world that asks of her all of these impossible things that we're looking at, where that goes and maybe where it could go. It's a bit big at the end, well, sorry. <laughs> I was really touched that Devorah said this is excessively written because there is a moment where I'm talking about Simone de Beauvoir, for whom the idea of becoming a mother was the greatest alienation any woman could undergo, although she also talked about it quite creatively. And I said, I think she shows the generative, generative potential of antipathy. And I was waiting for my wonderful editor, Mitzi Angel, who is here, who I would like to thank, um, to pick that sentence out and remove it, but it managed to just slip under, <laughs> slip under the wire. What a generative force of antipathy! But the point was to say that the hatred of Simone de Beauvoir for the prospect of motherhood allowed her to describe it in these incredibly creative terms, in terms of the alienation of the mother's body, the fact that you're welcoming a stranger, the fact that you are not 
the mistress of your world when you become a mother, which is for existentialism is the only point. So, it, it, uh, point of being. So it was as if through her anger, she actually generated an account of how motherhood puts you in touch with the relationship to the stranger, and therefore to the migrant and the foreigner and the other. That it is a it is a kind of opening out of something. And that we should pay attention to our forms of revulsion and learn from them. Um, but I think more simply what Winnicott's saying is that you just must allow yourself to experience the full range of what you're feeling. He says somewhere brilliantly, it doesn't matter what you're feeling so long as you're allowed to feel it. It's when you start cutting off, defensing, splitting, then you start really acting violently in the world. Um, I was wondering if you um, would have any comment on sort of the um, kind of sometimes often public shock at uh, statistics that um, that the majority of uh, abortions that happen are by are by women that are already mothers and sort of um, we're in Ireland and so the statistic is becoming very new to the public at the moment uh, on door to door that it's it's um, that it's about um, planned parent planning parenthood and wondering if you have any um, comment on that sort of purity that's expected that after you've already had a child that you're we'll prepared have to, the next one. yeah this this is your life and this is what you're living for sort of thing whoa well, i think you said it i just want to say something which is i'm not an authority on this you know there really are no authorities on this i wrote a book in order to just explore something but i now hearing myself answer these questions, I'm thinking this is a bit fraudulent, right? I'm just another woman who happens to be a mother and a daughter. And so, so I feel a bit uncomfortable, but I think you've said, you've said what needs to be said, which is that the statistic that abortions happen from women who already have children is a shocking one for exactly the reason you've said, which is that it really breaks down the idea that a woman who's had a baby is simply fulfilled through that act and suggest that there's still a question and that question never goes away even if you decide to become a mother it's a question you ask every time um, and also it just raises the key question of the social circumstances of different groups of mothers so for example i just was so shocked although i should have known this that the infant mortality rate that dreadful infant mortality rate in america that's now the highest in the industrialized world 60% is black babies. So there's now a group in America called Black Mamas Matter, right? So you just scrape the surface and you realize that motherhood is not a solitary category because it's so broken down by race and class. And, and that also, so I'll just give one other example. When Zoe Baird had to stand down as Attorney General because she'd been employing either a Philippines or a Mexican made illegally whose papers weren't in order huge amount of ink was spilt over the shocking nothing was said about this this woman this maid who almost definitely will have left her children in mexico or in the philippines in order to service so so there's a, you're touching on a whole history which i'm really glad you've mentioned which is the social circumstances of mothering and how they will decide what you feel they'll pay a huge part in what you feel and what you're capable of doing. So thank you. It's a really good note to end on. Really and it's very, it's very much in the book that I was. That is in the book that 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 concern and that concern with the, those social circumstances and the differences throughout. So, so uh, um, 
just because there were things I intended to bring up and I went on too long. One of them, one of the, and I just want you to know these things and, and also read the book. But what, one of them is that one of the most amazing ideas we get in this book is some of these questions about, you know, wh what can mothers do? How can they listen? How can the child be heard? All, all of this. What do mothers need to do to say? One of the answers I think the book offers is that we would all be spiritually malnourished were it not for people like Hannah Arendt, Simone de Beauvoir, and Edith Wharton, which for, who Adrian Rich calls unchilded women, because she prefers unchilded to childless, because she doesn't like that idea of less. But in other words, with the tip from Rich, Jacqueline is saying that women who aren't biologically or, or, or in any sort of legal sense mothers are mothering us in the most profound ways because they're the ones who dare to say these things. They're the ones who dare to imagine and admit what mothers might really be experiencing and feeling, whereas those who are contracted to be mothers perhaps can't dare go there because of, because of all, all the anxieties around that. So I find that one of the most inspiring ideas in the book as well. And uh, the other thing I didn't get to, of course, there's a whole chapter on Ferranti. Uh, and Jacqueline mentioned it. I didn't get there, but reading this book, I did go into that Ferranti space when I'm reading Ferranti. Something happened to me that was very like that. And Jacqueline describes Ferranti as a, as a perverse fairy godmother and says that's the highest compliment <laughs> uh, she can offer. And I found this book to be written by a perverse fairy godmother who, uh, who has caused me, because I... Uh, she mentions in the book that those who read mothering handbooks are very depressed on the whole, and we don't know if that's because they've read the handbooks or if they were depressed and therefore read the handbooks. Um, I perversely have read this book as a mothering handbook and, uh, and have been spreading the gospel. Hatred, <laughs> it's all fine, you know, it's all in the mix. So, so uh, I urge you to read the book and treat it as a handbook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.